This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Bryce Knights and the Breakfast of Champions. Sometimes when you bite into your cereal and a stunt wood comes into your mouth, there's only one thing to do. And that's pick up your stunt wood and get ill. Down the hill from Fort Miley on the corner of 43rd Avenue in San Francisco, I'm Schmitty. And this is Talkin' Schmidt. Today on the show is the triple OG, Mr. Bryce Knights. To say Bryce is a major influence on me would be a major understatement. He was pro for Schmidt Sticks and his model was one I rode more so than most other board. He was photo editor of Thrasher, the magazine I've worked at for 20 years. He brought a copy of the first Thrasher video to my crib to watch before it came out. And he was born and raised in my favorite city in the world, San Francisco. And through those years, he has always had a mystical relationship with the number 43. It's a number that Orb maps to the skaters' homes, Animal Chin, Rob. I guess he bought a banana at a corner grocery store up on Stanion Street. There was a Middle Eastern guy behind the counter, and he only had 40 cents, but the guy was adamant about the banana being 43 cents. He's like, 43, 43, 43. And it just stuck in Rob's brain, and then everything just became 43. And just everything was 43, and you look at your watch, it was 9.43. A receipt on a bill was something 43. It was just coincidental, and it starts fucking with your mind. Also, please be sure to leave a review and a five-star rating for our podcast so that it can continue to grow. And if you're looking to help support the show, you can go to TalkinSchmidt.com, where we have a new long-sleeve t-shirt designed by Nasty Neckface, along with the OG logo tees, beanies, and zero-screened hats. This is episode 43, and they are all free, so what's a $20 purchase, right? Anyways, I was really honored to get to talk with Bryce about his pioneer days and rich history, so without further ado, here's the mighty BK. This is Bryce Knights, and you're listening to Talkin' Schmidt. It's cool, like tonight is the night. Here we go again. Just give it the all cause try right now. All big dogs in. What do you think, Smitty? 96 times, Smitty. Thanks, Smitty. Beyond, Smitty. Talking Schmidt. He's so fucking different. <laughs> Shit my pants, lad. Your Rolodex is fucking deep. Are you ready? Come on, Smith. Hello, it is episode 43, and who the fuck else would I have in here but Bryce Knights. What's up, Bryce? How you doing, Schmitty? Good, thanks for coming in. Super stoked. Good to be back in the city for a little bit. What are you here for? Um, 
I rarely get any time these days to just do personal things, like seeing my mother who still lives here. So I came down to see her for a week. Um, I'm always on the road through the spring and fall. I just really don't have much time off, and it's, it's rare these days that I get to come to San Francisco. So oh. I said I'm going to make a road trip and came down with my dog, and we're staying at my mom's house for the week. Hanging out with her, doing some you know chores and errands for her. Yeah, help her out. Some family time. Yeah, sick. Uh, you were born and raised in SF, obviously. Yes, I was. What uh, hospital? Um, up on Parnassus. Um, that was. It used to be, I think, called UC San Francisco, UCSF. Oh. That's where I was born. My my dad was actually down the hill at Kizar Stadium watching a 49ers game. And somehow, one of his buddies said, "Your wife just went in labor. You got to get up the hill to the hospital." So he left the game and met the ambulance and saw me delivered. Oh man! Yeah. Uh, did your dad was he into baseball? He was into baseball, but I think he was more of a football guy. He played jazz music. Okay. He was a jazz musician. Played bass and was a he was a Niners guy. Sick. Yeah, definitely a Niners guy. And they played at Kizar, and the and the Giants played like where the Petrero Center is. Correct. Yeah, that's yeah. so rad. Like, to, yeah. yeah, I was there. I seen Willie Mays. Some OG stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when did you kind of get into skateboarding? Like, um, what was your first? It was. was first I remember part? the the actual month. It was um, July fifth after the Fourth of July. I was down in Ventura, California, which uh-huh. is down by Oxnard. Yeah. And I used to take the train down there in the summertime to see my cousins, and they had picked up skateboarding, and I kind of got attracted to it, bought a skateboard at a surf shop down there, William Dennis Surfboards, and we started skating around the schoolyards and down some hills, and I brought that skateboard back with me three weeks later to San Francisco, and um, from, from there I met, you know, Tony and Tommy Guerrero and Ray Meyer and... Joe Fong, it all started connecting, you know, within that next six months. Really? Yeah. Whoa. So what was that board? It was a Bane fiberglass 24-inch skateboard with Chicago trucks and loose ball-bearing Cadillac wheels. First urethane wheels. So I I never rode steel wheels or clay. That was never my experience. I always started on urethane. And what age were you about? I was 12. 12. Was there skate shops in SF at that time? There were very few. There was um, one down in the Marina District called SF Comp. Uh-huh. And then there was Skateboard City, which was on Terravelle and 18th. And I think shortly after that, maybe a year later, was Skates on Hate, okay. on Upper Hate Street, right. which was Skateboard City was owned by Lee Cole, who then opened the bigger store, which was Skates on Hate. Okay. So that was like the late... Late 70s, like 78, I'd say. So how would you meet, like, Tommy and Joe and other skaters? You would see flyers around, and and there was some... um, Cal Precision Skateboards was another skate shop that opened up uh, at 9th and Judah. And they had team tryouts at Jefferson Middle School on Irving and 19th. Team tryouts. Team tryouts to try out for the skate team of the shop. Was that like slalom or? No, it was freestyle. <laughs> like doing tricks, you know, kind of flatland stuff. And Tony and Tommy made the team right away, and so did Ray, Mar- Ray Meyer for doing freestyle. Um, and then we used to ride the hills of San Francisco, uh, the, the avenues, take the six Parnassus up the hill and ride down 9th and 10th and 11th avenues and use the transfer as a 
basically a lift ticket all day. Right. And you just have a, a transfer, and you just show the driver, that, and you keep going up and down, just doing laps. Who turned you on to that? Joe Fong and I think Tony and Tommy Guerrero. I mean, it all. Were it, they it, living up there? Or? Well, Tony and Tommy lived on uh, 17th Avenue, okay. right by Judah. So that's where I first met those guys. How cool. Yeah, we were all super. Tommy was nine. I was 12. Tony was 12. Joe Fong was the older brother. He was like four years older, and he was the first guy to get a car and drove us around to the skate parks when those started popping up. Uh-huh. The early seventy or the early skate parks in the late seventies. Would that have been Winchester? Or? Yeah, Winchester and Campbell and um, Milpitas, the first Milpitas. Uh-huh. Yeah, we got around either by BART, <coughs> which we can go down to Fremont and then catch the Samtrans bus to Milpitas. And we do that repeatedly every weekend. Met yeah. friends down there. And then Joe Fong would drive down the peninsula and we'd go down to the Belmont Drop was a ditch down there and yeah. then further down to Campbell Skate Park and Winchester and San Jose because the only way to get down that way was Caltrain but we didn't take the train we we wanted a car so. the Belmont drop was the spillway correct 41st up from Ghost Gate correct that was the first place I ever went I, yeah. w- I bought my skateboard at uh, Ghost Gate on 41st and they're like hey there's a, a spillway we called it the spillway yeah went up there and they had the little ramps and stuff yeah, to it yeah. there was a something else with somebody butt boarding down it i think jumping some boards and we're like that's our spot yes yeah like the ox a bunch of us yeah, that, that. We, we called that the belmont drop oh sick but yeah the spillway okay yeah, yeah. rad so joe fong was our connection to get around um being that he was old enough to drive a car and we were still too young Damn. Shout out to Joe yeah. Fong. Yeah, shout out. Definitely a shout out. He was our older brother that got us around. He's the hype man. He <laughs> yeah. get, he's, he's he's still the cheerleader of skateboarding. Yeah. <laughs> he's always texting me, Schmitty, this is coming up. Like, da da da. I'm like, yes. Yep. True or false, you were in a punk band. Uh, that would be true. How did that start? Well, was that in high school? No, that was a little, little bit after high school, I think. Like uh. 19 skateboarding had fallen away the skate parks went out of business and skateboarding was just kind of fading away so what did we do we got into music and we started playing music and punk rock was the way to kind of let that that expression out we didn't put our skateboards away totally but we didn't buy new skateboards we just used them to get around to the liquor store or you know different scenes but we weren't actively skateboarding for a year so we got into music, and that being me and Tony and Tommy Guerrero and Dan McGee, Shrugi, a bunch of us just started getting into punk rock because that was the thing to do. And this was 1978 and 79. Wow. M- more towards 79 into 80. And uh, we started a band called Jerry's Kids. I played bass. Tommy played guitar. Or, or no, he sang. Uh, Tony played guitar and drums. W- we didn't know what we were doing. We were just just making noise Ma- made a few songs and then from there we dissolved that band i went to a band called crucifix which yeah. recorded an ep and then free beer and revenge started with the, the guerrero brothers and shrugi was singing with revenge so it all came organically none of us were trained with music we just loved doing it and loved playing was jfa around yeah they were okay. yeah jfa was around at that point but and this is before the mag 
Definitely before Thrasher. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. This was, wow. This was probably a year before Thrasher started. That's insane. And we used to go down to Mabuhe Gardens and uh, see all the shows with Black Flag and Dead Kennedys. And, we, you know, soon um, enough we were playing support for those bands. Yeah. And, you know, opening up for the Dead Kennedys or the Lude or Circle Jerks. And we have all the handbills. Like, we were there. We were part of that, that whole scene. That's up. amazing. You know, going to shows for, like, $5 or, or less, you know, it, w- it was great. Do you remember, like, any specific that was, like, all-time? Like, like my brain would be like, we played with Bad Brains. But, like, you know. Well, <laughs> Free Beer did play with Bad Brains. Wow. At, yeah, at the um, Fillmore Hall. Oh, right wow. Right on Geary Street. Free beer went pretty far. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I played in a band for a year with Crucifix, and then I just got out of it, got back into skateboarding more and more, as did Tony and Tommy eventually. But um, no, Free Beer went far. They they recorded on uh, Not So Quiet on the Western Front. Uh-huh. It was put out by Jello and his crew, and they played a lot of shows. They I think they went all the way down to L.A. a few times, a couple of times. Yeah. So, I mean, Free Beer did really, really well. You know, Tony and Tommy really became great musicians, as you know. Yeah. They're both doing it really well, so. Yeah. Um, totally self-trained, self-taught. Somehow those brothers do yeah. everything they do, they do well. Style, man. It matters. Yeah. So then how did getting sponsored come along? That was like just, again, none of us really said, oh, we're going to be sponsored skateboarders or, you know, we had this goal to be pro. There, There was really like no industry at that point we were just skating around street skating started happening with thrasher's support and stacy peralta and fausto and kevin kt got together and they put together the first street skate contest in 1983 in golden gate park and there was a couple of bank ramps i believe there's a wedge ramp and a few fly-off ramps and maybe a flat bar it was really ramshackle but Uh it happened it went went off great. Tommy won, but he couldn't take the money because he was an amateur. <laughs> so Christian Hasoy won because he got second, but he was a pro. Uh, and Tommy was super pissed and crying, and it was pretty <laughs> dramatic. But um, that was the first street skate contest ever. We all had fun. It was good. It was showed where things could go. Uh-huh. And from that point forward, we just started skating around the city and like had it in our brains and our eyes like, that's skatable that's skatable and we would go around downtown san francisco and out to fort miley and all these spots and find places to skate yeah and this is like before anybody was doing it we're before kickflips but we were doing boneless ones and tail slides and lip slides yeah you know anything that was a basic ollie trick we were doing that Uh uh-huh and archimedes comes up one day he's like dude i got this spot on the bridge took us down to geary street right there at Portsmouth Square, and that's China Banks. Oh. And Arco showed us China Banks. Sick. It's still there today. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we were discovering new spots every day, every week. It was just new new terrain. Would you go ride the EMB, the wave thing? Yep. Yeah. Yep. We'd ride the wave, EMB. There were some banks on... Uh, second and howard the brick banks oh yeah and they used to not have any stoppers on them you could wall ride onto the building which we did plenty of times back to being sponsored it it just happened because the industry grew as we were all growing Mm -hmm. and then brands needed riders to support their gear and sell their gear so 
we started get, getting sponsored in the 80s. Um, back to the 70s, and Tony and Tommy were sponsored by a brand, a board brand called Alotaflex, uh-huh. which was in Berkeley, California. Those guys were the Groms on the team for a bit, and then, of course, the 70s and the skate parks all collapsed, and that went away. So Tony and Tommy were sponsored back then, uh-huh. that young, but then there was a void for about a year and a half, and then skateboarding came back as we were playing punk rock music. And then uh, Tommy got sponsored by Madrid, and then he got sponsored by um, Independent through Fausto. Tommy was on Madrid for maybe six months, and then I got noticed by Madrid. And as soon as I was on Madrid, or right after Tommy left, that's when I got on Madrid and Tommy went to Pal Peralta. Oh, uh, so you and weren't? We, no, we were never time. teammates on Madrid. Okay. But we were so stoked for Tommy because he got noticed by Stacy. That was a big deal. He was the guy. He was yeah. the street component to the vert guys that they already had. Right. So he made up the the final um, person, I guess, so to speak, for the Bones Brigade. And that's, you know, San Francisco blood right there. So, yeah, he put us up yeah. on the map. Fuck yeah. And do you think that was um, a big part of Thrasher's growth, too? Was Definitely. Yeah. And it wasn't like Pal Peralta had its hands in Thrasher's business, but it was so small back then that everybody worked together to build this industry. Right. And as I remember, when I first started working in this building it's actually in the shipyard but everybody worked together and fausto and stesic and stacy novak they all wanted to push skateboarding they wanted to sell their products they wanted to manufacture their products so they would take the road show to nebraska and go to rich flower day's backyard ramp and hold a contest put it in the mag hype it up same thing at joe lopes ramp Right. Bring all the guys up here. Have a contest. The first jam ever. Put it in the mag. Hype it up. Then they started to do that with street skating. The Capitola Classic. Yeah. Have an event. Hype it up. It was all self-controlled, but you know, to build skateboarding. It wasn't just for Thrasher. Right. But it was because Thrasher was the only name in the game at that point. You know. Yeah. If you look, Transworld at- came like three years later. Oh, okay. After the mag started. Eighty-three. Or yeah, eighty-three. If you look at those old videos, Fausto's in all of them. Like he's on the side or he's he's yep. talking to like Christian or whoever. He made shit happen, man. Yeah. He's like, this is how it's going to go down. These guys are going to get paid this and we're going to have a contest and we're going to hype it in the mag. Is that kind of when you started getting interested in the photography and, and, being, and trying to get in with, like how did that happen where you started working at Thrasher? Well... Or were you shooting photos your whole life? As a kid, I had been shooting since I was about 12. But it was just a hobby thing. It wasn't like I had no desires to be a pro photographer or pro skater. I just just did it because I saw cool photos in skate mags and and other magazines I saw. So I always carried a camera with me wherever I went, thankfully. So I have a lot of this stuff documented. One day I was at Rainbow Skateboard Shop, which was on Stanion Street. And Kevin Thatcher came in. And we were talking, and he had known, like, Don Fisher and Chris Cook and some of those guys who were in the shop. And then I got introduced somehow to Kevin, and I showed him my prints that I had printed in my Photoshop class in, uh, in high school. And he really liked this photo that I had printed of Camden Scott hanging upside down on the BART train on the bars with his feet and his skateboard on his feet upside down. Uh-huh. Got used as a something else. Right. 
maybe a month after that, Kevin told me that the magazine was growing. We could really use someone in the darkroom to help work with production and grow with us. So I quit my barbecue job, which I was working. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty hard. It was a pretty greasy job. Huh. Um, I, I quit that and started working at the magazine as the first paid intern, basically, and just learning from, from KT, Fausto, and Mofo yeah. how to put a magazine together how to blow it, how to sweep floors, how to screen t-shirts, all that stuff. I was just learning as the magazine grew. I was with it, too. So, so sick. Well, was the barbecue place? Was it like a restaurant or something? It was called Firehouse Barbecue on 6th and Clement Street. It was okay. owned by a San Francisco fireman oh. named Carl. And I was there for a year and a half. So I used to cook, <laughs> cook ribs and chicken and links and... Hence your epic barbecue skills. Uh, I, I can cook. <laughs> I, can, I can definitely cook. Right. So I did that and then went to the magazine and worked at the mag while I also went part-time to City College for print technology, just oh. learning paste up and layout, Yep. which I did at the magazine as well before desktop publishing. So just cutting Ruby lists and overlays and hands-on mechanicals to mm. lay out magazines. Yeah, it was yeah. like gluing stuff. Yeah, a lot of hot wax and stuff like that. Yeah. And exacto knives and tape and a lot of prep. You would do yeah. Photoshop skills without Photoshop. Like you would still put the guy over a logo or yes. like the cover. Yeah, the cover logo would go over Lester Kasai blasting a back yeah. there. Yeah. But you would just cut yeah, it with an exacto knife. All done by hand. <laughs> right. That's insane. Hand skills and lots of herb. Yeah. <laughs> There was a lot of that going on too. Just there was a lot of, I don't know. There was no kind of uh, HR department at eight, at high speed at that point. Right. <laughs> I'm sure that time clock wasn't there either. No. no. <laughs> did you sit in on an interview? What was the process like? Did Faust? Did you have to come in and sit down and be no, like? No, no interview. I mean, KT, KT told KT me I had. You're hired? He he loved what I stood for and what oh. I was doing, and said you could really use someone like me. And then from that point, I met. Fausto and Eric, and they were great, cool guys. I mean, they just saw me as a young kid that was hungry, you know. Right. Um, it wasn't a formal interview at all. Uh-huh. And I just started hanging out with those guys, and I'd hear all their jokes and their shit talk, and it was it was awesome. It's like having older brothers or dads in the room, you know. Yeah. And you just jive with them, so. But at that cool. time, they hadn't really laid down anything. Like, y this was all new. So it wasn't like... The magazine was new. The The manufacturing business, which was across the street, was where they made the trucks, Ermico. Uh -huh. So they knew how to pour metal and make trucks. And Okay. So that was their business. But they wanted to, you know, grow that business. They had to have a magazine to push those products. Sure. But hearing their, you know, daily banter about stuff was pretty cool oh pretty i can only imagine shit talk about stuff and yeah. motorcycle parts just all kinds of stuff right. it was great was ed involved ed was involved too yeah but he, he was, was kind of not on he wasn't in the office all the time at oh. that point he came in later when we moved to this building okay uh, here on underwood avenue in 1988 we did the big move so was your first published photo the, <coughs> the something else it was yeah something Sick. else Right. Of Camden. Of Camden Scott. Yeah. No way, that's cool. Yeah, we'll have to put it on the Talking Schmidt site. What about first cover? First cover. Man, there's been so many, it's hard to remember the first. But I think it was uh, Brian Brannon at the Love Bowl, that big psych that was outdoors, that um, Jaws yeah, and everybody skated. Yeah, yeah, in I Arizona. Think it was, I think it was Brian Brannon at the Love Bowl in 1987. Oh. Yeah, color cover. 
Right. I think that was the first one. And then when I got the cover, it was like I had been working here for about a year and a half. And I was skating a half-pipe contest in Mill Valley. And me and you know Ken Takeda and Tommy Guerrero and Sasha Steinhorst and Jake Phelps. And so many people were there skating. We were all the hot amateurs back then. Mm. And KT shows up. He's like, hey, what's up? Rad contest. He was like all hype, hype man. He walks up to me and gives me the new mag right in front of me. And we're in the middle of practice. I look at the mag and it's me on the cover. <laughs> I'm like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> he, he totally surprised me. I had no idea. I had helped put that magazine together but didn't see the cover. Whoa. I was just floored. Damn. That's Thanks, some, KT. That's Shout out. That was a life hammer. Yeah. yeah. I was pretty stoked. And was that drawing the Pusshead one? modeled after you on yes, like the, a nose pick yeah on the a, fire pick right so i think fausto and pusshead talked about a concept for a uh, art cover yeah and pusshead got the okay from fausto and then he said hey i want you to do that nose pick trick that you do because uh-huh. i came up with the nose pick so we just did a nose pick ollie nose pick on this curb up in the mission on 25th and mission in an alleyway i think luke took it and then puss illustrated it with, with the Jordans on. Damn. And it was called the Fire Pick. I've had two covers, I guess. Do you remember what happened the year there was no June issue? You know, I remember there was a something wrong with the printer. We used to get the magazine printed, and this was one of my other parts of my job. We used to print up at the Clear Lake Observer, which was a newspaper up in Clear Lake, California. Uh-huh. It's like, you know, two and a half hours from here. And the connection was Ed Riggins had a friend or somebody that he grew up with that owned the Clear Lake Observer. So that's where the first newsprint magazines were printed in Clear Lake. Damn. So I would rent a U-Haul every month and go pick up all the magazines. I'd drive an empty U-Haul up to Clear Lake, fill it up with all the mags, and drive it back to the shipyard. And then offload them into the warehouse every month. I would do that. So I think there was a problem with the printer up there, and we decided we couldn't do a mag. Uh, I, I can't remember what the real reason was, but there was some kind of a production problem with the printing. Okay. And there was a Stacy Peralta, May, June. In 86, there was an October-November issue that was oh, this like... this is way before then. I'm totally mistaken then. I want to say it's 84. Oh, okay. It's a yellow cover with Stacy Peralta... Oh, maybe early 80s? Yeah, it's a double issue. Okay. Well, because that was what I was going to ask next is in 86, there was an October-November issue. So there was only 11 issues that, is that year. that with Hawk at the Pink Motel Pool? Yeah. Yeah. And then the next year, there was 13 issues because one of them was called the Winter Issue. And so I was wondering... Like you're scrambling my brain. I'm claiming that's the first 13 because later we would do 13 issues and call them 13. 13, right. But this one was just said winter 88, and then there was January through December also. So there was 13 issues that year. I've got to go back to my archive now (laughs) because I have every single thrasher. I mean, right. There's no way. As well as do I. We got to talk about Tommy and uh, that session at um, Alcatraz. Ah. It's so iconic. The, the famous Alcatraz <clears throat> yeah. session. I'm sure that's one of the things you... Well, I just get. saw John Detman, John Little, his former last name Detman, but John Little now lives in Utah. So John was working out at Alcatraz for the U.S. Park Service, and he was just one of the um, 
general rangers. You know, he wasn't a guy, a tour guide or anything, but he worked there for several months. And he's a skater from Santa Barbara, and he knew most of us here in the city skating, skated my ramp, skated HP ramp, all that stuff. But he came here to work at high speed. Mm-hmm. He was actually the first team manager for independent trucks under Fausto. So John was working here in this building, and he mentioned this wall that was pretty low with a tight tranny on it in the prisoner's workout yard on Alcatraz. And he was saying, well, I think I can swing it where we can go out there and get a photo shoot. It'd be rad to go skate Alcatraz. And so I think KT said, yeah, go for it. Let's see if we can make that happen. And it did. We got permission to do a photo shoot on Alcatraz. And we went out with the um, employees on the first ferry out of Fisherman's Wharf to the Alcatraz uh, Island. I got that out there in the morning, and we rented a, a costume, a prisoner's costume, striped, you know, zebra stripes. It was Gons and Tommy, Guerrero that is, myself, Kevin Thatcher, and John Detman. And we get out there, and we meet John's former, uh, you know, co-workers, and this one woman decided she'd, she'd take us around and show us the cell blocks and all that. And she let us, you know, skate down what's called Broadway, which is the main uh, cell block. Uh-huh. And we could skate down Broadway and got a few shots, I think KT did, of John in the prisoner uniform. And then I got a few shots of John laying down in one of the cell blocks with the prisoner uniform. And uh, then we went out to the recreation yard. And the woman who was with us, she got a call on her radio and she had to go you know, meet, meet someone else and she said she'd come back. So we're out there in the prisoner's yard and Gons is looking at the wall. He's like, oh, that's totally skatable. So he starts doing these like wallies up to pivot uh-huh. and coming in. He did a disaster, frontside disaster. Uh-huh. And I shot maybe eight, ten shots, and she came back. And she was kind of pissed. She's like, you guys weren't supposed to skate. Well, we, we have skateboards. She's like, no, this was supposed to be just like a fashion thing. You're, not, you're damaging the, the yard. You know, This is a oh. national historic monument. Right. So we got kicked off the island. <laughs> she told us we had to leave. Damn. So I think all told... KT shot two rolls of black and white, and I shot one roll of color and one roll of uh, black and white. That was it. I got that photo on my wall. Yeah. So we were on the island maybe four hours, on and off. Damn. It happened so quick. Uh-huh. And that was that. Wow. Okay. Um, this is the 43rd question. <laughs> what is the deal with the number 43? Well, 43, it doesn't come from me originally obviously it it's a number that orb maps to the skaters homes animal chin rob rob's a good friend of all of us growing up rob fladen rob cam he's got two last names as well i guess he bought a banana at a corner grocery store up on stanion street there's a middle eastern guy behind the counter and he only had 40 cents but the guy was adamant about the banana being 43 cents he's like 43 43 43 and it just stuck in rob's brain and then everything just became 43 and that was like early 80s and it was just like 43 43 and it was an inside joke with all of us uh-huh. and just everything was 43 and you look at your watch it was 943 a receipt on a you know bill was something 43 and it just was it became not good luck or bad luck it was just coincidental yeah. and it starts fucking with your mind in fact, Neil Blender came up to me one time at a contest. He's like, man, I wish I never knew about that number because now I just see 43 everywhere. It's fucked. Uh-huh. <laughs> so if you're clued into 43, you're going to see it. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the cult of 43. 
Um, San Jose had a 22 thing going on. I never, I don't think it ever really caught, but Ray Stevens and Cab and all those guys will tell you otherwise. But uh-huh. 43 is it? Fuck. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, and it became this cult thing. And it's yeah, we all people all, all over the world know about 43. Yeah, we all yeah. took a piece of it. Yeah. I remember a friend of mine in high school. He was like 47. <laughs> okay like, like, he's gonna, like this is my version right but uh yeah no I, anytime i i see 43 I and it's a prime number it's I, not divisible i mean there's reasons for it and mm-hmm. you can look at certain newspaper headlines and it's like you know the night stalker killed 43 people or it just yeah things come up it's just really weird right so yeah 43 will always be part of me and others do we know where avalon is these days ask avalon do we know what wow that was a kt connection oh and as a young 20 something man i thought she was hot uh-huh. <laughs> um i met her once oh but i have no idea where she is i think that answer probably um lives with kt or blackheart perhaps Oh yeah, yeah, they might know. Yeah, it'd be interesting to get a hold of That's these. That's a good days. one. I know yeah. where Uncle Burley is. Yeah, he's back at <laughs> <Yeah>. shipping, <laughs> killing it. What about? Did you get flack for the snowboard cover? Uh, here and there, I have. Yeah. yeah, like how dare you? Yeah, Thrasher is not a snowboard magazine. Right. Um, I used to help KT in the early '90s. He was trying to bring in some snowboarding. I think more for advertisers to. Uh-huh. Truth be told, there were a lot of skateboarders that did snowboarder, did snowboard, including myself. Yeah. So we did this feature every month called Cold Snap. Mm-hmm. And either myself or other snowboard photographers like Rob Mathis or... Scott Starr. Scott Starr. There were a lot of other snow photographers out there that we would have contribute. And I thought it was cool for a while until the snowboard industry got gooned out by corporations so Mm. it became you know k2 and head and all these ski companies buying into snowboarding so it it just ruined it you know it just didn't have that same that same feeling of just organically growing a snowboard industry like thrasher did with skateboarding do we have anything to worry about skateboarding that happened into skateboarding with the olympics and everything it could happen man yeah it could happen we really I mean, I mentioned on my Instagram to Jake yesterday, just Felper, like, I miss his his honesty and just, he didn't give a fuck what people thought. If he felt it was right, he was going to say it and speak his mind. Yeah. And I, I think we're missing that in skateboarding. A lot of people are scared to say something. They don't want to make waves. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? It's time to make waves or we're going to lose what we got. We need Olsen. Yeah. I wish Felper was around to see what's going to go down with this Olympics thing. Yeah. I wish he was in Japan pushing buttons. Uh-huh. Meeting Jake for the first time. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah, he was this standoffish, quiet guy that just showed up to uh, Joe Lopes' ramp one time. He had a thick sweater on. It was really hot out. Huh. And he was ripping on a longboard, like ripping. And uh, had like, I don't know, maple syrup in his hair or something, just sticking up all <laughs> spiked. He was a punker <laughs> from, from Boston. And he just showed up and started ripping with us. I don't know where he came from or how he got to SF. I think he had family here. I'm not sure. Huh. So he would show up, be around for like a year, and then be gone. And okay. then show up again. Then he started working at Concrete Jungle. 
yeah which was a skate shop in upper haight mm-hmm. and then he was in the city full-time from that point forward like 1986 and he worked with tommy guerrero and mike johnson and archimedes a bunch of guys at the the shop and more and more was involved with the scene and do you then, think that's where he learned because when you work at a skate shop it's kind of natural to vibe people yeah he would, do you think like you said he was quiet is that me ma- ma- or was he had that instilled in him already i think he learned that at the skate shop punk rock shows and at the skate shop uh-huh. yeah just being edgy you know? interesting yeah i think he he didn't learn that he just grew into that sure you know he became this voice and this attitude and people listened to him some people were terrified of him you know like and, he, and confidence yeah gained like yeah. fausto giving him that chance or yep. whatever was like oh okay well here's what happened you know I, I worked under kevin thatcher for many years here and then um street skating really took over mm. and vert died it did die in 92 and jake was working here in the shipping department him and sarge just shipping out boxes all the products you know all the shirts that you've seen for decades they they were doing it mm. and jake knew the difference between a heel flip and a kick flip and all the technical tricks and kt had lost that and mofo didn't have a, a sight on what was going on there was a lot of changes going on in skateboarding especially in the streets and jake kept his ears and eyes to it and he proved that he knew what was going on and, and fausto saw that so Jake moved up into the editorial department with myself and Ken McGuire was still there and uh, Brian Brannon, who was our music director turned uh, art director. So for a number of years, it was me and Brannon and Jake running the magazine. KT was gone? KT was, he was into a publisher role with Ed. Okay. So he wasn't really eyes on or what's going in the mag. It was more about me and Jake and, and Brian putting it together. Huh. Kevin still had some insight to it, but Jake was leading more of the eyes of what's going on. We're going to do this trip. We're going to do this trip. Right. Things like that. He knew what was going on in skateboarding, and he cared. It was good for Thrasher at that point, and the yeah. industry was kind of fucked. A lot, a lot of guys turned pro, and they were gone. Blaze blowing. Yeah. One year in, one year out. Yeah. Mike Yosefor. Fedge. It just happened. It was unfortunate. You know, These guys yeah. got their pro model, gone. Yeah. Next, street skating. Yep. And everything was super slow, and we were blowing through so much film trying to shoot sequences with film that I would be laying at the bottom of a, a hubba or something, and there'd be like 20 rolls of empty canisters of film that were just <laughs> wasted. Not makes, just bales. Yeah. And Fausto was freaking out, like, you guys are wasting so much fucking money on film. He was pissed. So what did we do next? We turned to video capture screen uh, captures uh, <laughs> frame by frame of video footage it was the worst low-res stuff ever and it was going in the mag and i hated it as a photographer it was the worst thing but you're trying to keep up with what was going on the progression of skateboarding so we did that for a number you know maybe two years year and a half right and thankfully uh digital came in much later but yeah digital saved everything for especially for First, sequences and technical skating yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah for sure some of those mags the print would come off on your finger right like yes. i feel like now people make more of a deal about that than probably then or were people like would you send out a mag and somebody be like nice mag it's, the ink came out my fingers or like no right not really i think it was just 
that's the way it was. Yeah, I know. I don't, like I don't some think guys were that pissed about some it. new new like nowadays people will be like, the mag doesn't the ink doesn't come off anymore. It's like a, a slag or that something. That was decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, Transworld always had a a glossy paper, so right. they had the better paper than we did out yeah. of the gate. So the photos look better on that stock. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Was there one cover out of all the Thrasher covers in the time you worked that was kind of like sticks out as one of the worst ones? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's some pretty bad ones. I don't know, man. Like that, that one of Hasoy flying doing a method in italy and there's no guy in the sky over a beach (laughs) i mean i i haven't seen it in years but i know it's in my brain and i wish it wasn't but it's the worst cover i've seen okay what the hell is that it's like a bad postcard one of the best covers there's so many Uh uh-huh i don't know man it it goes so far I, i mean i can go 90s i can go yeah last week you know it's i'm biased but i gotta go with phil fort miley yeah that's a good one yeah over the bar yeah yeah there's many groundbreakers there's Um, some good cardiel ones the the ring of fire one's pretty sick ring of fire was pretty good it was challenging to shoot Uh it was all on film the fire kept going out we had to we didn't have a um a gas line through it it was all done with kerosene and wrapped uh, rope right and so kevin ansel kept relighting it and we finally got it right you know, uh-huh. we didn't have Photoshop back then. We couldn't enhance it, and that would be bullshit to enhance it. So yeah. we had to shoot it as is. Let's see. But cards pulled it through, and that was like, it was getting darker and darker. It was like, fuck. It was a struggle. <laughs> um, my favorite that I think I've shot uh-huh. is probably the Gons at the Widowmaker ramp Oh, on, on the that clay wheel board. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it was just laying next to the ramp, and Gons started faking back and forth on it. Within 15 minutes, he did a frontside ollie, and I had to shoot a photo of it it was yeah insane we didn't have a plan of even shooting that that day i shot him on his regular board doing some stale fishes and eggplants and you know just skating with him and max mm-hmm. and then he pulled out that board that was on the side of the ramp and did a front side ollie did you ever see insane. anybody skate that ramp that let or actually not see him skate because jake said you have to roll in and they couldn't and so they left did that happen? no i never saw that oh but did that go down? It did go down. Okay. That was the rule. That was the you rule. had to roll in. Right. And that roll ramp in, was gnarly, get the right? fuck out. Yeah. That is the quote. It always will be. And the same stood for that ramp across the street here. Yeah. You got to roll in or you get the fuck out of here. Tough love. Yeah. <laughs> I think Burnett told that story that when he got hired, Jake took him to the ramp as to roll in. And luckily, Mike was kind well, of a vert skier. He has tranny skills. Yeah. So he was like, I did it. But yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. Was there something special about this session, that um, iconic photo that we used for the cover when he passed the, at Hunter's Point? I know that that was like a a big vert ramp in that era for everyone to go to. But was that session in particular? Was there anything like kind of cool to know about? Um, that particular photo wasn't a special session. It was an average everyday session. Uh-huh. It's the HP ramp in Hunter's Point, just on the other side of the hill from the building here. Right. And it was all built in this guy Rolling Fingers' backyard. It's a dilapidated house, but it had a lot of backyard area. So it was all stolen wood that was assembled. <laughs> and it was an old vert ramp that um, hung out for like a year and a half. Was it, was it originally Shrugi's? It was Shrugi's old ramp from wow. Walnut Creek. 
and all the wood ended up in Hunter's Point wow. and got rebuilt. <clears throat> had angle iron, steel angle iron on one side, and then the side where Jake is grinding had a PVC pipe cut in half, and it used to flex and bend and pop up. Nails would pop up through it. It was just sketchy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that particular day was just it was just an average day. A lot of guys came from all over the Bay Area to skate that ramp, so you would have a convergence of different guys skating. Uh-huh. Crews from from Hayward or Mill Valley or you know the peninsula everybody came to that ramp they just knew about it and it wasn't like you had to have permission you just walk on the side of the house and you were in the session yeah it was was a gnarly zone it was it was (laughs) it was a gnarly zone back then you wouldn't you wouldn't go outside or walk down the street to the store yeah it was just too gnarly Mm -hmm. in fact um pierre used to live under the extension of the ramp for a number of months yeah it's pretty crazy and you were, <coughs> were you at the contest where they had the riot at the dish? I threw that contest. <laughs> it was called the Day of Hell. <laughs> and I had an idea to put on a contest at the dish. I don't know why I thought that, but I got Smooth Hill to give me, they were a distributor in Mill Valley. Um, they gave me some boards from C-Flex, and I got some boards from Ron at Concrete Jungle, and we had a, a bullhorn. And we had a street skating kind of contest at the dish, and the Jacks team showed up, and right. it turned into a riot. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, the contest went off, but right towards the end, it just got gnarlier and gnarlier, and more of the locals were showing up and throwing bottles. And all of a sudden, there was a decision to get the fuck out of there because it was getting gnarly. Uh-huh. Like, we didn't hear any gunfire or nothing like that, but. It was not a place for us white boys to be. Yeah. We got in the cars and got the fuck out of there. <laughs> yeah. That was called Day of the Hell. Um, Noah Selaznick won. It was 1985, like Damn. in the spring of 85. Okay. Yeah. What year did you turn pro? Uh, 1987. For yeah. Madrid. For Madrid. That was yeah. the graffiti BK? Correct. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was the first board I had. Okay. And then yeah. the Gargoyle Schmidt Schmidt Sticks, yeah. What's the story behind that graphic? Is it from a building in SF? Correct. You've done your homework. I had about eight of those boards. Okay. That was one of the... Wow. Mo- yeah, it was like... Because it was kind of shaped like a Nautis. And and I skated with dudes that love Nautis. Uh-huh. And we were skating Nautis. But then that one, the pointy nose. Right. It was like different. I don't know. So Nautis and I both had the pointy nosed boards back then. Yeah. Those shapes seemed to work really well for wallies. Right. Because there's not as much nose drag. So you could glance off the side of the wall and just keep going. So mm. really good for wallies. And wall rides for that matter. But um, the gargoyle, they are positioned on the southeast corner of 2nd and Bryant Streets. And they're mm-hmm. on that building, right above the lobby level, and you can see them from outside. And I shot a photo of the gargoyle with the shield, sent that down to Paul Schmidt, and then he had Chuck Holtz and Jay Henry put the artwork together from my photograph. Right. And that's how graphics were done back then. You had an idea, you get it to your sponsor or somebody that can really draw, and that's what happened. And the BK was drawn by Kevin Ansel. Oh. who worked here and did the Spitfire logo and all that stuff. He's done so, so much. So he did the BK. Oh, sick. Yeah. I did one board graphic before in my life, and that was Joe Lope's first board graphic for Schmidt Sticks. Really? It was an M.C. Escher drawing of a crystal ball, and I shot a photo of Joe Lopes in his um, bedroom holding a ball. 
and then I incorporated that into the Escher drawing. I think drawing. I remember so that. Did they make a sticker of it? Yeah, there's a sticker, yeah. and Joe Lopes is holding the crystal ball in his own bedroom with the bong on the dresser and all that. Yeah. Joe was a smoker, a big yeah. smoker. <laughs> Fuck. That's sick. So. CBS, when did that start? Wow. I think it came through this guy who was a boogie boarder skater, Mike Shaw, Michael Shaw, uh-huh. African-American guy that grew up with us. He was out in the avenues, and um, he always used to say, CBS, bro, CD- CBS, bro. It was always stood for City Boys Shred. Right. And myself, Mickey Reyes, Tommy, Orb, all of us, that was our moniker back then of CBS. So we were known as the city CBS boys. Right. Wherever we went in a contest or a skate session. And there was a video called CBS boys, right? Nope. Like they had the freestyle bike. You're thinking pack? of. Cur- oh, curb dogs. Curb dogs. Yeah, that's curb right. Curb dogs. Totally separate. Okay. Curb dogs was more BMX based, but it also had some skateboarding in it because the BMX connection to our crew was Maurice Meyer, Ray Meyer's brother who huh. rode for Skyway. Oh. Bikes. And him and um, Dave Vanderspeck, who used to ride. That's the guy. Dave Vanderspeck used to ride BMX at Joe Lopes' ramp. Right. Really good. Yeah, he was. So sick. both Dave Vanderspeck and Maurice Meyer were um, riding bikes for Skyway. Okay. And so they did a video mainly based on demos and skate, uh, I always say skating, riding at uh, Golden Gate Park, mm. which we used to do every Sunday. We'd haul a jump ramp out there to skate. Those guys would do their freestyle routines on bikes or skateboards. Mm. So we always had a, a crew out in Golden Gate Park every Sunday and just skating. It was fun. And that's where the Curb Dogs guys put their video together and got some notoriety. There. Right. But CBS was a totally different thing. Okay. And, and CBS didn't really go that far. It was just kind of more of an insider thing. But, you know, the Sacto boys knew us and San Jose, uh-huh. C- CBS. Yeah. yeah, talk about that a little bit. Um because there was some heat between SoCal and NorCal skateboarding, right? Yes. Like yeah. the first cover was a drawing. Then there were, was it the second or third cover that the guy from Chris Stropel? Chris Stropel yeah, got, f- and and that was kind of a big deal to have a SoCal guy on a NorCal mag Correct. cover. So here's the thing: Chris Stropel was a tracker skater, uh-huh. and he grew up in Southern California with Wally and all the guys. Right. He's a well-known professional skater and the first guy that did the backside alley-oop air kt went down there and stropel had just gotten onto indy so i don't know and this is stropel would be able to tell you but he's on indy kt went down there they shot a photo several photos of him skating a backyard pool and that became the first photo cover for thrasher magazine issue prior was an illustration that kt drew right onto indy so I don't know, and this is Stropel would be able to tell you, but he's on Indy. KT went down there. They shot a photo, several photos of him skating a backyard pool, and that became the first photo cover for Thrasher magazine because the the issue prior was an illustration that KT drew. Right. So the first photo cover was Chris Stropel from Southern California on Indy trucks. Right. Like, <laughs> was there a kind of, like what was the vibe uh, I on was that? Too, I wasn't even working at the mag then, so oh, I don't know. Okay, but I can sense that that ruffled some feathers. Heavy. It's like, 
but there was no industry at that point. It was done. Uh-huh. There was one magazine. There was nobody was buying skateboards at that point. So it's kind of a tough spot. But again, Thrasher was putting their foot in the ground, saying, "This is where it's going. This is our guy. We're growing it. Yeah, we're taking whoever we want with us." It, it seemed right. <laughs> okay, moving forward a little bit. I saw you in Canada in 1988 at Kevin Harris Skate Park. I don't think we really knew no. each other at all, but we might have seen each other. But like, I, I knew like, oh, there's Bryce. Like, ah. I, I knew it like that. Were you on vacation or? Me and my friend Eric that yep. you met later. I know Eric. We graduated from high school and we took a trip and to we were ranch. like, we gotta go skate that ramp place, like, because it was in Langy outside of vancouver and it had all these indoor it kind of was like animal chin on steroids yeah and there was just ramps everywhere right and and we loved ramps right so we went there not really knowing what the fuck we were gonna do and you were there with i was there with noel murphy noel murphy my my buddy noel yeah okay and and we were on a vacation it wasn't a work trip i have a photo of you doing a lip slide on the on a ramp there though four years later five years later you were maybe tutoring kind of Tobin, like getting him like, hey, there's this new photographer. I'm going to show him the ropes. Tobin somehow comes to San Mateo to like shoot with my friend Mike Alcantar, who was really good, and Oscar Polchowski. Somehow we go to a contest in San Francisco or a jam and you're like, hey, we're going to go over to this school that, and we're going to do some – we're with McIntyre. We're filming some stuff. Do you guys want to come? We're like, yeah. Whoa, this is crazy. So we go there, and that was the day that they did the No Couch Potato Venture ad where Mike's going over – I think it was Mickey, but it might Mickey, have been Arco. Mickey and uh, Julian sitting down. Okay, yeah. yeah. In front of that school is a handrail Correct. where Julian did the first front board that same day. Yep. It was the sesh- it was just like yeah. all happening right in that day and I was lucky enough to be there. I had a camera and I kind of shot it from behind and I have photos of possibly one of the first ever front side boards uh, on a handrail. You do have a photo of the first front board. <laughs> that was insane and then I think it was like 2 days it was that weekend we drove to Tahoe in my VW bus. There was a contest at maybe Donner. And we had a whole great, like, Ray Barbie was... There was all these people that I was meeting for the first time. Like, fuck, these guys are sick. Whoa, this is insane. And Arco was there. Uh, you, Tobin probably. Mike Alcantar, me. And, and I think my friend Nick. And Nick was driving home. And we were kind of passed out. And all of a sudden, he pulled the car over the the engine blew up yep and we were outside of sacramento i believe it was like something oak or something like uh whatever anyway my car got left there we all took the bus to san francisco and uh, i left my camera in the car oh my god so all the photos from that fuck I was like, I You're don't care about me. the camera. It's the film. You're kidding me. I know. Oh if anyone God. out there found that roof, wow. <laughs> I'll buy it. Wow. Yeah, but that was insane. But that was pretty much, I think, the beginning of 87. our relationship. 87. And yeah. then we had a mini ramp in the back, and you would come down. And, mm-hmm. and, of course, me and Phil became friends, and Phil opened the door for me in yep. ways I'll never be able to explain. Yep. But uh, through all that, we got tighter and tighter and then throughout all the years. But uh, that day, 
people can't even believe when I tell them. I'm like, yeah, yeah so I was there. And people are like, no. My recollection of it was we were skating this couch that was discarded in the back of the middle school. It was Everett Middle School on uh, 17th and Church Street. And Tobin was there, myself, Mike McIntyre, Mickey, Julian, Arco, a bunch of us just skating. And uh, I don't remember coming from a contest there. I just remember being there, skating that and, and shooting photos. And then we went out to the handrail in front of the school on Church Street. And Julian started doing frontside board slides down this little rail. And I shot a black and white sequence and a couple of color stills with a flash. Meanwhile, Tobin shot black and white. And Schmitty, unknown to me, <laughs> shot you know sneaky eye <laughs> but but it wasn't like back then it wasn't like this is my photo shooter yeah you know turn your phones off there was no, no instagram, instagram. <laughs> yeah. it was just like dudes having fun and making shit happen right and julian made shit happen we were there and that's how it happened so yeah a lot of things in skateboarding were like that it wasn't about what trick did you get today or you know it, it wasn't a competition it was just like shit was just happening and we happened to document it with our cameras and Thankfully, that's, a, that's one of the best memories in my youth of just being there. And half of photography is being there. Right. So we, I, were, we were there, and no yeah. one can take that away from us. Yeah. You know? Julian didn't even know I was there. Like, I, yeah. I, we were at a bar one night, and he, he was clowning me about something. And I was like, what do you mean? I, I was there when you did the front board. I didn't just show up today like you, Johnny, whatever. <laughs> and he was like, you weren't there. And I was like. I'll I'll send you the photo tomorrow. By the way, full disclosure, we used Schmidty's photo <laughs> in the DVD copy of Sick Boys. You gave me the the negative to scan. Yeah, I got it. And then Sick Boys, how did that come about? So McIntyre, this photo shoot we just spoke of at Everett Middle School with Julian was this hippie guy from Marin County used to hang out with us. He was a stoner and he had you know, a super eight camera. And he just asked me if he could film us. And there was no, like, I'm going to do a skate video. He just wanted to film us. And he was a surfer and said, sure. So often I would call Mike and say, Hey, we're going to skate this spot or this spot, come meet us. So he'd show up in his VW bus, a yellow one. I remember it. And he would just, um, document us skating wherever Mm -hmm. we went in the city. So if you go to sick boys video, you'll notice that all the parts are locations. And right. he went to Arizona with, with Julian and Mickey, and it's all location-based. Uh-huh. Then towards the end of the film, Mike realized he had a lot of footage of Nottis. He went down to Venice Beach and hung out with Nottis quite a bit. So in Sick Boys, you have all these locations around San Francisco primarily or the Bay Area, and then you have Nottis, who has a part at the end of the video. Because Nottis had the most footage, and he was such a groundbreaking skater. It was like, yeah, Nottis should get the part. And then with the narration, we went up to Mike's studio and drank some wine and smoked some herb and did the first narration for the first thousand copies of the video. It sold out, and then we had to do another narration because he lost the audio, or we had to enhance the audio or something like that. So we had to go back in and, and do some more narration for the second pressing. Was that ad-libbed or was it written? All ad-libbed. When you dig into a bowl of Wheaties. Yeah, yeah, just totally <laughs> watching the footage, stoned and drunk, and just heckling ourselves. That's what we were doing. <laughs> Mac Dog Productions. Hey.
Presents. If you haven't seen this video, Sick Boys, get a copy. It's probably on YouTube or something. Yeah, let's watch it. It It was a huge inspiration for me. If you're a NorCal resident and a skateboarder, you have to have it in your video collection, absolutely. Shout out to Mike McIntyre. Shout out. Yeah. Mike came down to my house and he was like, we were going to try to plan a a premiere in the peninsula right and that was cool those those times were like very exciting for yeah. me yeah the part where you guys go to the hook yep scared the shit out of not only me lots of other people that have gone there even recently like is bryce gonna be pissed <laughs> <laughs> i don't own the hook but i do keep it very close to my chest and i don't let too many people know where it is yeah it's just one of those spots you know you don't want things to be blown out right so i'm sure thousands of people have been there but i'm not going to tell you where it's at yeah (laughs) (laughs) we have a very excited tim mckenney on the phone he heard that you were coming in yeah no way and we got a he's got a question for you hey what's up bk uh that's the question what board did you like more your uh bk graffiti style board or the pointy notes gargoyle because uh even Schmitty just told me back. Uh, we all had one. He said he had a bunch. I probably had like three. <laughs> Knock it off, bro. Um, regarding the boards, I definitely like my Schmidt boards better than the Madrid boards. Just Paul is truly a professor and and studies molds and and how skateboards work and don't work and their strength points, constructions, and. My first Schmidt board had an upturned nose, which gave me leverage on nose picks, and it was just a stronger board. It just those boards lasted forever. Um, the other boards they would break on just flying off a jump ramp or off a curb, a tall curb. So, yeah, Schmidt knew what he was doing, and and until he stood by him, and I was stoked to you know help him develop new molds and new products. So, the gargoyle for the win. Cargo for the win, Tim. And he wants one more question rebate. Also, Bryce, uh, your fondest memory of skating with my God, not as coppice, whether it be in the city, Shroupin, Sick Boy style, CBS, or uh, down south, shooting with him, uh, shooting photos with him. Um, that's it. Thank you so much. I had plenty of great sessions with Nottis. Um there's a few that I can mention. One, we, we got to skate Stacy Peralta's mini ramp in his backyard up in the Hollywood Hills, which was really cool. Mm. And that was kind of new because a lot of people didn't have their own little mini ramps in their backyards. And that was like in 1988. I went down to L.A. to hang out with Nottis and start shooting his interview for Thrasher. So we went to Stacy's house and got to skate his ramp. Orb was there with us. Shout out, Orb. Shout out. And then we went to the Federal Building in Santa Monica. And Nottis, with copers on, because there's a reason, but he had copers on both trucks. But he 50 50 the Federal Building rails, which are super long and tall, as I remember. They're not steep. They're just long. And sticky aluminum. So that's why he had the copers. But he hammered that out for his interview. It was amazing to see 50-50 go go down on that rail. Nottis would always surprise you what he could do. Um, One time at Studio 43, he showed up, and he was just blasting 
Ollie to grabs, you know, it was like new back then. Tommy was doing them off of jump ramps, but on a mini ramp, mm. it was like, wow. So fast forward a few years and I had to tear studio 43 out because the lease was up and the other people that contributed to the rent didn't want to do so. So we had to close studio 43 down a year before the lease was up. I had to rent it out, but um, so I'm taking the mini ramp out, and I find all these cut up athletic socks with duct tape wrapped around them. <laughs> they were Nautis's socks that he would cut off of his feet after every session at my ramp and stuff them under the flat bottom of my ramp. No, <laughs> thank you, Nautis. <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> How did uh, Studio Forty Three origin story like it? It all started because. You know, street skating took over, so there's lots of street skating going on in San Francisco and the Bay Area, but we just, we were lacking skate parks or ramps or anything with tranny at that point. We yeah. just didn't have a lot of places to ride ramps. Um, I think HP was done by then, so this was 80, end of 88. So I had been looking around, around for um, warehouse space, and uh, Fausto had a guy who helped me out. And I found a warehouse space down on Marin Street, right across the canal, the, the channel over there yeah. off Army, Army and Third. And I got this space for 3,600 square feet so it could house Fausto's cars and my mini ramp. And so Fausto would help pay rent, high speed paid rent, and then Deluxe was starting up to help pay rent. And later on, uh, Think, you know, Street Corner helped pay rent. So we had enough money coming in where it wasn't all on me i'd have to pay a portion of the rent and all the insurance okay and then there were a number of keys and everybody got to share on that so we had a place to ride a mini ramp night day whatever all all hours of the night you know it was great it, it there was no uh residential area near it uh -huh. so we could bl blast music that's where the hell ride started every friday night after work we'd go out there and have barbecues and skate the ramp by then we had a vert ramp attached to it because Fausto said, uh, if you guys get the wood, we'll build a vert ramp, and I'll take the cars out, but I'll still pay the rent. Oh. So we had a vert ramp for a year and a half. Yeah. Dogtown video, right? Yeah. And what else? There's like a James Kelch board release party there. I think that, didn't they fight. have Danny Way's Sodi party? Sodi party for Danny Way. Yeah. Second one. Second Sodi party at Studio 43. That rolls. Yeah. So a lot of things happened there. It was really good for San Francisco skateboarding. Um, guys would come from the peninsula or other parts of California to come skate. Certain guys from San Jose never came up, but <laughs> whatever. San Francisco didn't matter at that point to them. I'm not sure. They had uh -huh. Kennedy Warehouse. We had Studio 43. Uh, yeah. But no, it was great. Had a great time. We all really learned a lot of tricks, and it was cool. Rain or shine. It lasted a total of four years. Four years? Yeah. Fuck, that's killer. Yeah, and like good. the location, did you? Have, it's kind of on the on the border of like gnarly and dog patch. So like, did you yeah. guys ever have any heat or anything? We never had a problem. We never oh. had anybody coming through to cause shit or break in. Right. There was never a problem with it. No, Sick. it was really cool. I never had to go there. Yeah. Um, you never got to go. Mm. Oh man. I know. Yep. But I did get to go to Ray Myers ramp. Okay. And. It ended up in my backyard. No, that's where that's where that <laughs> ramp went. Yeah. I'll tell you a story about that one. Okay. So I was pretty instrumental in building Ray Myers' ramp. Uh huh. And I went away. 
I think to Europe or something like that on a trip, came back and Ray Meyer said, we got to move my ramp, got to take it down. My parents are over it because this guy, Rory, who was a BMXer, friend of his brother, Maurice, uh-huh. um, put his cigarette butt out in the knot hole of the house and the house caught on fire. So their dad was pissed. Oh, yeah. So the ramp had to go. So that became your ramp? And then Larry from Ghostgate, because we would go, I think we had like a, a, a Wednesday or a Thursday, like you guys can skate at this day each, I don't know what it was. We were skating there kind of a lot. Like we, we had a day where we would just go there. Remember and, there was a bowl that never got finished? Yeah. yeah. And somehow Larry talked to either Ray or his parents and was like, we'll take it. And then we just took it apart and brought it. Wow. And then it lasted no It lasted at my house for less than probably three months mm. because the neighbors called the police. They're like, blah, blah. And we spent like all this time. We bought new wood as you do when you build ramps and stuff. And then it was like, are you fucking like, I was so livid. I was like, we just built. Like this, I was like, yeah. I'm gonna learn so many tricks. Like I got a ramp in my backyard. Yeah. yeah, it was short lived, but it was, it was. I think I did learn Smith grinds on that ramp. And so then after that, the crib ramp started. Yeah, like then a little bit later, the Ray Meyer ramp went to my mom's when I still lived at home with my mom. Okay. Then I moved to Menlo Park with my friends. We had four of us, and we built. Well, no, actually, even before that, Redwood City, ah. they had a ramp. And those guys lived there, and and that's where, where Phil and all of us kind of started really bonding. Yep. And then we all moved. Four of us moved to Menlo Park and built that ramp with no neighbors. Yep. Right and off it, the freeway. Yeah. yeah. And if, that was cool. It would be so sick. Now. Like. I remember watching Eric J skate there. Yeah. I shot with him there, but. Yeah. Front blunts and that guy had such board control and just so light on his feet. He would always show up at 10 o'clock at night because we had lights. And he would just be like, hey, man, I want to skate the ramp. You'd be like, all right. And yeah, Yeah. he had a front blunt on that Zubox. He did. I think it was an Indy ad maybe or or something. I can't remember. It was was an ad. Yeah. And then I shot Carol there. Oh, yeah. It's part of his. um, A Japan air maybe? part of his Saudi stuff. It was, um, yeah, it was a Japan air. And then I think he did like an Ollie fakie too. Uh huh. Something like that. And then yeah. I think Wade had a photo doing that, like yeah. either invert or A. How wide was that ramp? It was wide, like yeah, 32, seemed, maybe. It was wider than my ramp, I remember. Yeah, it was yeah. so fun. Wow. Yeah. Good, um, good times. How are you doing? I got a little bit more to ask you. Do you want to take a little break? Hey, it's Matt D at DLX Skate Shop, 1831 Market at Guerrero, as in Tommy. Come see us. Real, anti hero, crooked, thunder, venture, spitfire. We're here every day of the week except the big holidays. We've got a curb and we've got smiles on our faces. Come let us get you stoked. And now for another First Impressions with Timothy Donald McKenney. My first impression of the photography master Bryce Knights is a session with Pales, me, Dan, and Phil going to his spots. I believe they were kind of close to his house by the hill. Legend had it, they were all marked on his wall on a big poster board. Every one of Bryce's spots marked out. But it was a nice wall ride spot. Me and Pales were just reminiscing it last week at the B. Uh, the session was so epic. I remember Dan doing maybe switch wall ride 180s out. I remember there was a wall on the other side. Ollie in the wall, bombing the hill. Ollie in up. 
and doing a wall ride. It's all documented in damage. The day with Bryce. There was also another spot where you ollie over a doorway onto a wall and goat rope off and bomb the hill. One of my favorite spots that I skated with him. Uh, Bryce Knight, you're a legend and a hero, and I love you, dude. I love your style. Hey, it's Corey at Blue Plate, 3218 Mission Street. Come see us. Meatloaf, fried chicken, deviled eggs, Dollar Olympia beers. We're here every day of the week. We got a garden, and we got smiles on our faces. Come let us make you happy. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Tony Farmer question. Who is Mr. Ballistic? Wow. <laughs> I, is that me? Is, who is it? I don't know. Mr. Ballistic. He said just ask you that. Who's like, Mr. Ballistic? Wow. Could be Tony, man. Huh. That guy's like the calm cat, and then all of a sudden he, fuck, I've seen him blow up crazy before. Oh. Maybe he's referring to himself. Yeah, we don't know. It, it can't be me, because I'm calm, man. Why did you choose Canon over Nikon? Mainly because of the mag. Really? Yeah. So, f- Fausto and KT, Mofo, they, all the gear at the mag was Canon at the time. Okay. I started with the Nikon. Oh. Yeah. What was your first camera? It was a um, Canon F body. Um, my dad got me for my sixth grade graduation. Huh. And I carried that around with me for a couple of years. But then when I w- went to the mag, I, I got an AE-1, and I could use the lenses that the mag had. Uh. Which There wasn't a fisheye yet, but there was some wide angles and telephotos mm-hmm. and i remember mofo got the fisheye with the built-in filters the 15 millimeter 2.8 i was like man i gotta get that that lens is amazing and i finally saved up enough to get that lens huh. but i always stuck with canon yeah then i went to the t90 which had the first uh 250th uh, flash sync for right. da- daylight flash yeah i've always stuck with canon since and you still have I'm it. on their program with yeah. canon professional services and some guys have gone to Sony, some of my better friends. Yeah, I've seen that. Shout out to Acosta. Shout out, Shout out to Andy Kuno. Shout out. But I don't know if I can do the the mirrorless stuff, man. I like the weight of a camera. A little light thing kind of freaks me out, but you just have to convince me or let me demo one, I, I think. You got to shoot a hummingbird in low light. Andy, you got that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Have you ever left your camera anywhere? Have no. You- I am always so good about my gear, and I've never had a problem. Uh-huh. Uh, you know the story about Dawes, right? Lance Dawes? No, I don't know. I don't think okay, so. Okay, so Lance Dawes, a <laughs> couple years into doing slap, he goes to Barcelona on a trip with a bunch of dudes. I don't remember what trip it was, but he goes to Barcelona, and he's there with his camera bag full of high-speed gear. And he sets the bag down next to him on a ledge, and he's watching the guys skate or whatever. He had just gotten to a spot. And he turns around, two minutes later, bag's gone. Oh. Someone saw him, you know, maybe a couple dudes worked it, and they got the bag. Gone. Ghost. End of trip. Go back home. Yeah, so always keep your gear on your body, in front of your eyes. Don't be a kook. Yeah. It happens. I mean, I hear about cars getting smashed over at Petrero all the time. 
they leave their car or leave something in the car, go get something to eat or just, you can't do that, especially in an urban environment. There's people looking for that shit. So that means you, Paul Shire, keep your gear, (laughs) keep your gear close, man. What about the, uh, no look through the viewfinder? Okay. (laughs) I'm glad you asked about this one. Here's the thing. And I'm not like saying you can never shoot without looking through the viewfinder. But when you're shooting an event with other photographers, elbow to elbow, and you're at the combi pool or you're at the do tour, wherever the fuck you're at, once you're not looking through the viewfinder and you're extending your arm with a fisheye on the fucking camera in front of the skater next to another photographer, guess what? You're blocking everybody else's shot. So what am I getting? I'm getting a photo with your fucking arm and a fucking fisheye lens in front of my face. (laughs) It's bullshit. Keep your eye to the viewfinder right next to me. I'm not going to see you. If we're all shooting the same, you know, 15 millimeter viewpoint, we're not going to see each other. Mm-hmm. So don't kook it. That's all it is. But you, c- if you want to shoot without looking through the lens when you're not around a bunch of people, you want to bring the lens down to the tile underneath the coping, get creative, do it, get weird, whatever. But just don't kook it at a contest. Yeah. Mofo will tell you otherwise. He'll say you can't ever do that. No, you can shoot without looking through the viewfinder. Just, just be cognizant of your other photographers trying to get work done too. Right. Because you don't own the fucking contest or the, the scene. You know, have some respect. And if you got a GoPro on a stick, we yeah, don't need even you worse. even in the yeah. arena. Just You <laughs> want to come up and get you know recognized for your, your good work? Learn to work with others. All right. You've since moved to Oregon. Do you have a favorite park up there? been in oregon almost 13 years now it's crazy yeah. how fast it goes <clears throat> now all my friends are there yeah <laughs> everyone's someone mine. someone had to jump off the ledge first i guess <laughs> <laughs> you know there's so many good parks up there and i like to like tune out and get away from the crowds right so i'll just go find little parks like tigered nobody goes to tigered anymore it's no just quiet it's in the suburbs you know like get weird go yeah skate with the the dinosaur you know um, you go to Glenhaven or even Burnside for that matter and things get crowded. You can go to Burnside at night or in the mornings and it's fine. What about Donald? Donald's fun. It's a little more of a trek, but Is super it fun. It's a backyard pool feel. I love Super that. fun. The only yeah. thing I don't like about Donald is that the deep end faces west. So you're in the uh, evening, you're getting blasted by the sun. Right. And it's hard to see the lip. Mm-hmm. But that's just an old man problem. It's not. The, the bowl <laughs> is awesome. It's just um, the way it's orientated to the sun. It's kind of tough. Mor- yeah. Morning sessions. If you and I ever, uh, we've never flown together, I don't think. No. But if we did, it'd be a great <clears throat> tandem because you're team window seat and I'm team aisle seat. This is true. Is that so you can rest your head against the window and sleep? Always. So I don't always have to get up and pee. I can pee before i get on the plane and i'll sleep for six hours or whatever i can sleep on a plane no matter what Damn, so that's a so good thing. lucky so really good for international flights mm. so yes i like to sleep against the window the fuselage if i'm in the aisle i always get bumped by somebody walking down the aisle my elbow or my shoulder and it's just a drag so i like to not be bothered mm. so i always take team window seat i've been doing that hashtag since instagram started yeah i love that one yeah, as long as I have a window, a little hoodie so I can use it as a pillow, some headphones, 
Mm-hmm. I'm good. Any other tips for the long flights? Like besides sleeping, if you can't sleep, what uh, you get a, a good book or do you yeah, listen book, to stuff? Books or? are always good. Um, if you're more in the business class area, then you always have power, so you don't have to worry about you know your phone draining. Mm. So then you have movies. You can do whatever you, you want. You have your computer. Yeah. But if you're stuck without power and you're in the back, I guess books are always good or magazines. Okay. Um, let's play the name game and close it out. Okay. I'll say somebody's name and you say what comes to mind. Joe Lopes. Funny motherfucker. Uh, Mofo. Motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Tommy Guerrero. Street Chicken. Rick Blackart. Old Blackie. Joe Fong. Big Brother. Kevin Thatcher. I owe everything to Kevin Thatcher. Brian Brandon. Bo Baba. Jake Phelps. Dedicated. Eric Swenson. The grease behind the wheels. And Fausto Vitello. My other father. I'm so fucking stoked. Like, really honored to have you here. I was telling my girlfriend the other day, like, growing up as a kid, you had the dream job in my eyes. Getting to meet you, you were the nicest guy and never gave me attitude. We became friends from a distance and I got to do some really magical and rad shit because of you. Probably you're my KT. <laughs> and to have you here is fucking sick. And just to be able to ask you lots of questions about yeah. this life that I've I've been at the mag for 20 years this year. So Jake's always given me a lot of information, whether I know if it's tainted or not. It's right. just I know you were there too. And I just appreciate you so much and cool. stoked that you came in. Uh, can we end on a crucifix song? Crucifix song? Yeah, that would be good. Annihilation is a song that I wrote for crucifix. So Mm. let's just play annihilation. Fuck. Yeah. Is there anything else we should mention? No, I just want to thank everybody that's given me a chance in this life of skateboarding. I'm blessed to do it. Um, nothing was easy to get where I've been and I'm thankful for everybody that's involved and really believes in skateboarding because it really does save lives and opens up doors so keep doing it keep skateboarding absolutely cheers thank you guys all for tuning in and big special thanks again to Bryce for being here he has a lot going on in his life he has many accolades and I'm very privileged to have him in here so big love Uh, I'll see you guys next week bye from the human production for the benefit of a nation or its destruction. Power is power, it's the law of the land. Those who live for death will die by their own hands. Life is no ordeal if you can come to terms. Reject the system which dictates the norm. From dehumanization to arms production for the benefit of a nation or its destruction. It's your choice. Peace or annihilation. <laughs>
You got the people locked in your house You wanna jump them to save your life Knowledge and knowledge is just the same Rocking, rocking, gonna blow your way Thank you for listening to another episode of Talkin' Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews and a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow up them charts. All the episodes will always remain free to my listeners, but if you'd like to help support the show, you can do so at our website, TalkinSchmidt.com, where you can pick up some merchandise like stickers, beanies, t-shirts, or hats. The website has an entire archive of all the episodes with extra photos and video. You can also email me with any concerns, questions, suggestions, comments, etc. at TalkinSchmidt.com at gmail.com. That's Schmidt, T-A-L-K-I-N-S-C-H-M-I-T at gmail.com. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by me, Schmitty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature, and a special shout-out goes to my executive director, Cheryl Camisa. Shout-out. Until next week, this is Talkin' Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper. Talkin' Schmidt, Talkin' Schmidt, Talkin' Schmidt. <laughs>